Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to, to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the program, John Miller. Baltimore, you're beloved. San Francisco, you're beloved. You, you've been doing it a long time there. But people around the country know you for Sunday Night Baseball. Did it for roughly 20 years. You and your partner, uh, the late Joe Morgan, a great player. But but it's a, another one of those things. That's my playing time, you know. That's my time when I signed professionally. I signed in 1990. When I was in the minor leagues, uh, it wasn't today. We didn't have those our phones where we can just get any piece of information anytime we want. It was... After a Sunday day game, we're going to go listen to Sunday Night Baseball. I'm going to listen to John Miller. I'm going to listen to Joe. And I'm, sometimes I'm going to argue with Joe in the room and say, no, Joe, that's wrong. Um, you didn't have a million options like we did today. So you kind of you became a part of the baseball landscape. That's like I, I mentioned. I hear Harry Callis. I can hear John Miller's voice anytime uh, throughout my career. That means it's Sunday Night Baseball, guys. Now, you were the – Sunday Night Baseball was what – Monday night football is to football. Uh, tell me about those times. You know, before that, the only thing I can think of as a kid, there was this week in baseball, Mel Allen, N- NBC game of the week uh, with Kubak and Garagiola. But I don't know. Just talk to me about those years and, and what it meant. Uh, it's kind of, I don't know. It's a it's a classic. It's And, and there's still Sunday night baseball, and it's still – you know, people watch it, but it's not like when it was in the in the mainstream. Nowadays, I can go to my TV and on Sunday, I've got every game on that MLB package. And I can watch any game I want all day long. There's always Sunday night baseball coming a little bit later, but it, but it's not like back in the day when that was the only game you're getting to watch. I think uh, Joe and I, and we both grew up here in the Bay Area, in the East Bay. Uh, Joe in Oakland, I grew up in Hayward, a little bit south of Oakland. Uh, Joe got his degree, which he promised his mom uh, when he signed his first professional contract. She didn't want him to sign. She wanted to, She told him he needed to finish his degree, get his college degree. And he promised her that he would get it. And he made good on his promise, although it was years later, when he, when he finally finished up all of his work at uh, Cal State Hayward, now called Cal State East Bay, and uh, which is right near where, where I grew up from the, the seventh grade on. And so we came at the game from entirely different backgrounds. Joe was a player and a great player and a battler. He had scouts who kept telling him, uh, kid, sorry to tell you this, but uh, you'll never play big league ball. Because he was too small, they, they said. And that served as just an extra impetus for Joe to, uh, to prove them all wrong. And he, he told me a story and it's, it's, it's a really a sort of a, uh, the, the kind of a story that, that sticks with you. Uh, and this was late in his life that when he got the World Series ring in 1975 at Fenway Park. And after the game, they're all celebrating. And Joe had, had uh, the big hit. He, he knocked in what was the winning run. And... While the celebration was going on, he kind of stayed at his locker and had thoughts to himself, just had some time to himself. 
And he said what he was thinking about was the first day that he got to the big leagues with the old, they were called the Houston Colt 45s. It was such a long time ago. They weren't even the Astros yet. They were the Houston Colt 45s and played at Colt 45 Stadium. They hadn't even moved into the Astrodome yet. And he thought about that moment when he put on a big league uniform and a big league clubhouse and how excited he was and proud he was. I proved those sons of guns that they were wrong. I made it. I'm here. I'm in the big leagues. And uh, now I got to show him I belong here and stay here for a long time. And he did that too. So he thought about that and he had this precious few moments. And, and to me, it said a lot about who Joe actually was because Joe was hard. You know, he was a competitor and no matter what he was doing and, 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 and he was tough. So, and yet he had that inner core that where he was kind of a soft, he was a family guy, loved his wife, loved his family, his daughters. And uh, that's the Joe Morgan that I remember. And it's such a cool story. So now we're thrust into this booth together. The only thing we have in common is that we love baseball and we both grew up in the East Bay and we grew up Giants fans and we grew up idolizing Willie Mays. And then by extension, Orlando Cepeda, Willie McCovey, Juan Marichal, and some of those great Hall of Famers that the Giants had in their, in their ball club at that time. So those are the only things we had in common. He was a black man and growing up with uh, all of that meant in, in our society. I was a white guy from, from Hayward and, uh, and not a good player. My best year, I was 15 years old playing Babe Ruth League. I hit, I don't know, 315 or whatever and uh, actually hit some home runs, made the all-star team for the first time. That's as good as it ever got for me. And uh, I, I remember the, the coach in high school, uh, Jim Bessinius, and I, I still talk to him on occasion. Great guy. He's 90 years old now. Stays in shape, still very athletic. And uh, he lives up near Sacramento. So we talk every so often. But they had the, when I got this Hall of Fame award, uh, they invited him to come down and say something to the crowd. They had a, a night at the ballpark and uh, you know, all my family and everybody was there. And, uh, uh, and they did it on the field before the game. And so I said to Jim Bassinius, I said, this never happened, but I think you'll get a good laugh with it. If you just say something to the effect of, um, yes, I was John's coach in high school. And yes, it's a true story. Uh, I can take credit for John's success as a broadcaster. Uh, I'm the one who went to John as the season was about to begin and said, John, I think it's time for you to retire as an active player and move up into the broadcast booth when he was 14. And, uh, <laughs> and it was great. He got a, he got a big laugh from 40,000 people. So <laughs> anyway, so Jim Bassini was, was the coach and, uh, the, and I just wasn't a, a real good player. I was reading all these biographies that they used to publish these, there was a guy named Bill Libby. I remember back in the sixties and he had a whole series of these biographies of sports stars. And I read all of them and, the thing that I kept reading about all the baseball guys is when they were in high school, they hit 650, you know, rusty stuff. Hit 650. I don't know what you hit in high school. I imagine you hit pretty well, though. You always hit 500 in high school. You got to, right? That's, that's, kind, of the, that's kind of the bar. Yeah, well, I hit 315, uh, my best year ever. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> so uh, I kind of read all these books, and I realized, you know, maybe I probably won't ever make it to the big leagues uh, 
I'm not hitting 650 here in high school, but uh, so uh, so we, we we came at it from much much different points of view. But the thing we had in common was besides that we love Willie Mays, we grew up Giants fans, and, and and all of that. We had a similar background in that regard. Was that on Sunday night we're at the ballpark, and there was no place either one of us would rather have been. And it always bugged me when I would hear broadcasters that come into your booth before, and they're just kidding around, but it still bugged me, where they say, hey, can we get a quick game here uh, today because uh, we got dinner reservations or we got, uh, I want to get to the golf course, or, you know, whatever. And it was always like, so this, this gig, this kind of an imposition for you, uh, this is like in- infringing on your time, because I think we looked at it as what a gift this is to be able to go to the ballpark, enjoy the game, and then get paid for it. So, and I think that you need that attitude if you're going to be good as a broadcaster. And, uh, and you know, some guys, it's just they played for years and uh, it's hard for them even to be around the game so much when they're not playing, you know, because they, they remember it as a player and it's so much different if you're not playing. And 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 maybe it's hard because they they, they miss it. They miss being a player. I don't know. But, uh, but we had that in common. And we love those games. No matter, you know, we, we were at Yankee Stadium, Red Sox, Yankees, and the game would start, you know, in, in those days, Sunday Night Baseball was came on after 8 o'clock Eastern time. And those games were going to last until after midnight. <laughs> they just were. And uh, you know, we weren't going to get back to the hotel till 1, 1.30 in the morning in midtown Manhattan. Uh, and yet we just looked at it as, yeah, because every pitch is so huge because there's so many great hitters and, and great pitchers going head to head and every pitch counts so much in this kind of a rivalry. So we savored all of that. And, and, and I will say, by the way, just parenthetically with these new rules now with the pitch box, and I love it. I think the game is being played the way it should be played right now uh, at a good pace. The players are on the field, play the game. There's no other sport where they're on the field and they don't play the game. You know, you could call a timeout and use, you could only call a certain number of them and, and have a breather. Otherwise, you have to play the game. And baseball was just the one sport where guys could just walk around and do nothing. And hitters could walk away from home. play. Where are they going? They walk You remember uh, Troy Tulowitzki? Yeah. What a player. Great Short player. Stop. Yeah. But uh, in Colorado, he was, he was a great shortstop, a gold glove shortstop, and a power hitter. He could do it all. But every time he was at bat, the pitch would come in, outside, ball one. He walked halfway to the dugout, look off in the distance, take a big breath, take a practice swing, and then walk back to the batter's box, then dig his foot in. And, you know, it's like, Troy, is, is it okay if we just go ahead and play again or sometime soon or, or what? And there were certain guys that, that did that. Uh, and some of them weren't big stars like he was. Uh, Albert Bell, I always remember Albert Bell. Uh, he would kind of, he wouldn't walk halfway. They'd just take a step out and take these practice cuts. And it was fun to watch him do it. Uh, Albert Bell was a ferocious hitter. Great Unbelievable. hitter. Under, Unbelievable. You don't, hear, you don't hear about him. He's one, if his career doesn't get cut short, he's one of the, he was one of the, if not the best run producer of that of that generation. Yeah, he 1995, the year after the strike, people forget that we did not play a whole year that season. 
you know, we, we started a month late and they played right. 144, it was 144 games, I think, instead of 162. And Albert Bell hit 50 home runs and had over a hundred extra base hits that year. Wow. And, uh, who knows what those numbers would have been if he played 18 more games. So, uh, I used to like to watch him play. Uh, I guess uh, he was notorious. He was hard to get along with and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and there are a lot of bad stories out there. And some of them I take with a grain of salt. I, I always remember a guy uh, picking up a ground ball. It could have been a double play. And Albert's the runner going to second. And, and Albert basically play, you know, knocked that guy out in the left field. The guy was nowhere near second base. But Fernando hey, Vina. Fernando Vina, that's it. He could have killed him. And, and he got <laughs> he got ejected from the game and he got suspended and whatnot. And uh, uh, and uh, the last guy I had seen do that was when I did Red Sox games. And Butch Hobson played for the Red Sox, an old football player from Alabama. Dwayne Kuyper was the second baseman for Cleveland. And it was, it was the same play, ground ball to Kuyper. And Butch Hobson just destroyed him. And... Uh, I mean, and, and, and it was not pretty. It was it was horrible, and Kuiper had to be taken off the field. They had to clear his air passage. He couldn't breathe. He was starting to turn blue, and he tells that story now, and he kind of tells it, you know, to get a laugh, because uh, his main part of the story was that Eckersley uh, came over. You know, Eckersley was now with the Red Sox and a, and a star pitcher, but he had been with the Cleveland. And they both kind of came up together. They were old teammates. And Eck comes over and he says, is he going to be okay, Doc? And uh, Dr. Pappas was the Red Sox uh, t- team doctor. And, and he was trying to figure out whether they should uh, uh, cut an air hole, you know, in, in his neck to help him breathe. You know, it was uh, what they call it, a tracheotomy. And, uh, and he's talking about doing that right in the dugout. It, it was horrible, a moment. But Eck is there, and he's, he's got a cigarette. <laughs> and he's, like, smoking a cigarette. And Dr. Pappas looks up and says, Eck, for God's sakes, get that cigarette out of here. <laughs> he can't breathe. Get the cigarette out of here. And that's where, you know, Kite tells that story and gets a laugh with it. But uh, it was no laughing matter of what, what happened to him. And they, they, they were able to restore his breathing without doing the tracheotomy and, and whatnot. He went to the hospital and so on and so forth. But Albert Bell, uh, same kind of a play. And I always remember, well, nobody ejected Butch Hobson. Nobody, uh, you know, suspended him. It wasn't even a story around the country, Butch Hobson. Yeah, those football players, man, they play rough, don't they? And, uh, you know, so uh, then Albert did it. And Albert had this notorious reputation. A lot of people didn't like him. And, uh, and he gets suspended. And I always remember thinking, how can that be? Uh, not that I was saying that's a good way to play the game, but I thought, so if the guy's on second base, sure, try to end his career. Try to plant him into the left field wall, you know. But if he's not even at second base, then you can't do it. So I, I think there's a little bit of confusion into the, the, what could be done and what couldn't be done there. And I thought that, that Albert sometimes was not treated as fairly as he could have been, which is not to say that, he didn't deserve a lot of the criticism and whatnot, that he, he wasn't surly and he, he wasn't mean uh, to people and, and so on and so forth. But uh, as a hitter, and I think about Albert when I think about the new rules now, because I like these rules and I like the, the pace that we're playing. 
that's the way the game should be played. You're on the field, play the game. Um, it had gotten out of control. Well, the, the amount of time people were taking just to, uh, the, the, the psychologists in the game and said, yeah, there's no rule against it. Walk off the mound, uh, refocus, look, uh, look at the light tower, take a deep breath. And, and you know, there, there's no rule against it. You, when you're ready, then go back up there and pitch and, uh, same with the hitter, you know, just walk away and uh, get your reef, you know, get your focus again and so on and so on. So this had gotten a little out of control, I think, uh, because a lot of time was just being taken up, not playing the game by, with nothing going on. Uh, but I used to think with Albert Bell, he'd step out and he'd take these practice cuts. And there was something the way he did it. Willie McCovey, when I was a kid, same thing. He'd take these practice cuts. And it just looks so, uh, Willie Stargell. Maybe you remember seeing Willie Stargell take I those remember. practice cuts. It was fun just to watch him. Uh, and I thought, maybe we can have a rule about you have to stay in the box uh, unless you're one of the biggest stars, because then we like you to, we don't want your at bat to go away fast. We, we enjoy right. you got, you got to be, you're rated when you come in, you got to have a certain amount of stars and then you're allowed to do certain <laughs> things. You know, yeah. you know, John, and it's funny because all those years, all the years I was playing, you were up in the booth and you do look at it differently. Like you said, you don't like it when people come into your booth and say, Hey, can we move it along tonight? They're always in a, in a kidding way, but something kind of bug, it bugs you when they say that as a player, I can be honest. Not one day in my life did I ever think on the field, let's move it along. I always thought if I need some time, I need some time. When I heard this off season, they were going to a pitch clock. I'll have to admit as an ex player, as a kind of a, a purist of the game, old school, Man, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I thought a clock, you know, we pride ourselves on being the only major sport that doesn't have a clock. Uh, but I'll tell you what, <laughs> I, I had an open mind. I watched spring training. I remember I was in, in Peoria doing a Seattle game and I was up in the booth. I, I dropped by for two innings and it ended up being four innings. And it seemed like by the time we were done, you know, they were asking me a question about a story back in the day. By the time I finished the story, the inning was over. And I would, Rick Riz, a buddy of mine who was doing the, the Mariner games, he says, Booney, I'm telling you, these new rules, these games are just moving along. Had uh, <clears throat> had Kruko on recently. He said it. he thinks it saved the game. And I have to be honest, as a player that was in the trenches, that that is as old school as they come, I really like this this new game with this pitch clock. These games are moving along, I think. I think it, 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 I don't know, it puts something into you. I think you're going to see more contact. I was a big, uh, you know, I, I didn't like that you can only disengage twice to the mound. Then the people that really steal bases, it's going to be too easy for them. But then I think, well, the game today, they don't even steal bases. They don't bunt. I think it's promoting that. It's promoting you to steal bases. I think that that needs to be, part of the fabric of baseball. Uh, I'm seeing a lot more bunning going on. I'm seeing players actually ready because they know by the eight second mark, I've got to engage. And I think just as a result of that, there's more contact in the game and it's boom, boom, boom. And, and for me now covering games, if, if I, if I, de I have to DVR a game, it doesn't take me as long to go through it. It's not this four <laughs> hour thing. It's two hours and 27 minutes. So I have to admit, uh, I was a I was a pessimist a year ago. I really think it's doing good things for the game. 
Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Well, I agree. And I, I started my first year as a major league broadcaster was 1974 with Oakland. They were the best team in baseball. They had won two straight World Series. And the year I got there, they won for the third year in a row. And it was largely the same team. You know, Catfish Hunter, Vida Blue, Ken Holtzman in the rotation, Raleigh Fingers in the bullpen, Reggie Jackson, Sal Bando, Joe Rudy, Campy Campanaris, Bill North, uh, Gene Tennis. I mean, they could they could beat you in so many ways. They had power. They had speed. They had two guys at the top of the order who could steal 50, 60 bases each. Uh, their defense was outstanding. Dick Green might have been the MVP of the 74 World Series. And a lot of writers said, if he just get, get one hit in this World Series, I'd vote for him as the MVP of the series. But he never got a hit. And yet he was a key player. He was such a good second baseman. And uh, when I look back at that, at being 22 years old, uh, I and I, it's not that I was getting paid that much, but uh, uh, I think my salary... Uh, 1974 was $20,000, which, and I thought, man, $20,000. Oh yeah. Uh, so, uh, it, it seemed like a lot of money when you're 22 years old at that time, that's for sure. But I probably should have paid them for the opportunity because watching them play every day, uh, Monty Moore was the broadcaster. He'd been there a long time. Uh, and he, uh, pointed things out to me and, uh, so I watched them play and I could ask them questions. Alvin Dark was the manager. I asked him stupid questions and he answered all my stupid questions. Uh, it was a great way. It was like getting my postgraduate degree in baseball because they had sophisticated bunt defenses, relay plays, and they beat the Dodgers in that World Series. Most people thought the Dodgers were better, that they beat that Oakland team. But the Dodgers would make a critical mistake almost every game. And the A's would turn that into a run. Uh, and and they, the, the final scores of all four of their wins, I think, were three to two. So they were all tight, low-scoring games. And uh, I think a, a key play in the final game, the clinching game, Billy Buckner hit a, a base hit into right center field. Now, the Dodgers are down by a run. It's the eighth inning. And he hits a base hit into right center field. And I take it back, it was a tie game. And the ball hopped over the glove of Bill North. It took a bad hop, you know, because the, the Raiders, by that time, they were playing football at the Coliseum. So there were a lot of bad hops out there from the football. And it hit one of those bad hops and hopped over his glove. But Reggie Jackson, the right fielder, took nothing for granted. And he had raced over and backed up the play. Now... Buckner thought, man, I could go to, to third on this one because Buckner ran really well at those. This is before uh, Billy was limping around all the time. and But Reggie backed up the play, number one. He made a perfect, and people forget when he was younger, what a great arm Reggie Jackson had. And he hit Dick Green with a perfect relay throw, chest high, just the way you want it. And Green already knew what was going on. 
because he, you know he was that good. He played your position, and all the things you need to know in a relay, uh, he had already he already knew what was going on. He caught the throw in a position to throw, and then made a perfect one hop throw to Bando at third, and he tagged out Bill Buckner. And Buckner got a lot of flack for that because he would have been at second base with nobody out as the go ahead run. Instead, he's out at third. Now it's one out, nobody out. But for me. There were so many things that happened. If any one of those things had not been perfect, he would have made it. So what are the odds that a team's going to make two straight relay throws and they're going to be both absolutely perfect? And that's the way they played the game. That's the kind of a team that they were. And that's how they beat you in so many different ways. And and I, uh, that, and I always, I, I like telling that story about Reggie because Reggie, you know, he, he was a guy who, uh, uh, he was kind of a, a larger-than-life character. He was great for a quote and whatnot. But a lot of people didn't like him. They thought he was too outspoken and this and that. But uh, Reggie backed up that play. I don't, I don't think he ever, people never bring that up uh, in, in, in that discussion when they talk about Reggie. He's this, he's that, he's selfish, he's blah, blah, blah. Uh, no, Reggie, he knew how to play as well. And I remember as a kid, uh, we were in New York and uh, there was a play where uh, there was a base hit into the outfield and the the runner is coming home from second. And Reggie comes up throwing toward the plate. And he doesn't get close to getting the runner out, but now the guy who hit the ball ends up at second base. And, uh, and Monty Moore points out that you know, Reggie missed his cutoff man. And in, in, in even worse, there, there was no cutoff man. His play was to throw the ball to second base. And uh, so now he gave up that extra base and so on and so forth. So I pick up that theme and I'm talking about it. And, uh, and then when the inning's over, the guy doesn't score. And I point out, I said, well, he, he, even though he got that extra base, it didn't turn into a run. He did not score. He was stranded. Um, so now the next day, we're in Baltimore. And we're waiting for the team bus. And Reggie was one of the only players there, uh, and the broadcasters, and, and uh, you know, few people getting on to this late bus to the ballpark. And Reggie, he's not talking to me per se; he's just sort of talking in general, like he's making a speech. Charlie Finley, uh, the owner of the A, he called me uh, last night. He says, uh, "Don't you know how to play?" My broadcasters said that you. Uh, missed your cutoff, man. You threw to the wrong base. Don't you know what you're supposed to do out there for all the money I'm paying you? And uh, so he's telling the story about Charlie Finley, you know, giving him a lot of grief about it. And then, uh, so, uh, and, and I don't remember how the, the, th the thing played out, but it was really being directed toward me. And, and so when we got to the ballpark, I went up to him just in private, not, not in a public way to ask him about it and uh, to tell him what happened. And uh, and he said, well, the thing is, you don't know how tough it is out there. You don't know how difficult it is out there. And when uh, Dick Green is in the game, he keeps me in the game before the ball's even hit. He's reminding me what the, what the the where the throw should go. And I always know I should just pick him up. Wherever Green he goes, I know that's where I'm supposed to throw the ball. And uh, so he wasn't in the game yesterday. And uh, so I said, 
well, do you mean I should point that out and say, well, Reggie threw to the wrong base. But his babysitter but, wasn't here today. <laughs> his, uh, uh, Greeny wasn't in the game, so he didn't know where to throw the ball. So he goes, no, no, no. I said, I said well, I understand, and, and I, I want to apologize because I, it, it is hard. And I, I disagree with you that I don't know how hard it is. I don't know what you go through in the big leagues. Right. I know when I was 12 years old, it was really hard. I thought it was hard ever since I was a little kid, you know, when I think you were hitting 800 as a 12 year old, you know, and hitting a home run almost every at bat. So uh, I think I do know a little bit about how hard it is. And, uh, and we had a really good relationship for the, the rest of that time. And, and I always enjoy seeing Reggie. We, we had a game at when he was with the Yankees and I was doing the Red Sox and he had a big night at Fenway park and a couple of homers and five or six RBIs. And, and I was supposed to go down and do an interview after the game. And so I was looking for Reggie. I wanted to interview Reggie. And I, the thing was, you had to take him out to the dugout. And uh, so I find Reggie, he's in the, the trainer's room. And he's, he has a, uh, like a quad issue or a ha hamstring issue. He's got this big bag of ice wrapped around his, his, his right leg. And I said, oh, because I'd called down and they said they'd tell him. And, and then they told me that he agreed to do it. When I see him. And he, I said, oh, oh, hell, I, I, I didn't know that you had this. He says, no, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And he, he wraps it. He's got almost no clothes. On. He's got a jersey on, and he's got this big ice bag, and that's it. And he takes a, a, a towel and wraps it around it and, and walks down to the dugout at Fenway Park. And we do the interview. And uh, so uh, I really appreciated it, as you can imagine. And then finally, at the end of the interview, I says, listen, I – I don't want to give away too much here, but you've got some kind of a, a leg issue. You got a big bag of ice wrapped around your right thigh. And, and, uh, and yet you came down to the dugout to do this interview. And I just want our listeners to know uh, that you, you went uh, above and beyond to, to come speak to them about this game and what, what went on in the game. And then Reggie, this is what uh, it, it, kind of ticks people off about him. But at the same time, in my case, you had to love him. He said, well, John, I wasn't going to do any interviews after this game today because I had this issue. Um, but because it's you and we've known each other so long and I have such great respect for you, that's why I'm doing it. So uh, happy to do it anytime. Let me know and I'll be there. So uh, so I went to the, the next morning, I went and found a, a, a bottle of nice champagne, <laughs> brought him a bottle of champagne with a little note to, to thank him for uh, for coming on with me. So, uh, so Reggie knew how all that stuff worked. And, uh, uh, you know, and that's part of the, the fun thing for me, because I'm a baseball fan. I like the game. And, uh, and when you're a baseball fan, you like those, the, the great characters, the, the guys who are so good. And Reggie was one of those guys, a guy who rose to the occasion under the brightest lights. Not everybody can do that. And I mean, Willie Mays was that kind of a character, McCovey, and, and so many of these guys. And uh, uh, so I just count myself as being supremely lucky that uh, I was able to grow up watching these guys. Even Yastrzemski, my first year doing the games, first time ever at Fenway Park. And Yastrzemski was the guy on our A's broadcast. He had a great game that I asked to do the interview. And you had to generally take him over to the visiting dugout and that's where all the equipment was. There was some union issue. And the engineer had, had uh, dropped a line down from the booth at Fenway, down the screen, 
and it was all tied up in the backstop. So we go walking over to the backstop and Yaz says, oh, we're going to do it out here? I said, yeah, that's, it's a union thing. We, this is how it's all set up. So I take this microphone and there's fans still there and they're all shouting at Yaz, you know, for autographs and this and that. And uh, so I, the farthest I can get from the backstop to do this interview is maybe 15 feet. And I'm having to look up to the booth and Monty Moore is going like this, you know, to give me the cue that you're on because I have no earphones. I can't hear him. And I interview Yaz and says, Yaz, you had a, a home run, two doubles, three hit game. You threw out a guy at second base and the Red Sox beat the athletics. Congratulations. And the fans all cheer and, and they're, they're clapping their hands. Like we had a studio audience for this interview. Right, right. <laughs> so now he does the interview with me for several minutes. And, and I, so he was my favorite. From that moment onward, you couldn't say a bad word about Carl Yastrzemski to me after he did that, because as soon as the interview was over, he had to walk over to the backstop and start signing for all these people who were still there, you know, right. but all the while he just, he, he signed up for doing a four or five minute interview after the game and then getting back into the clubhouse and having something from the spread and getting his shower and going home. So uh, anyway, those are some of the little things that kind of, stick with you with the, the guys who uh, have that uh, ability to to help you out as a broadcaster and uh, and they don't they don't have to he could have said no so uh, so and he i told him that story several years later when i went to boston to broadcast the games and uh, he had no memory of it of course but uh, uh, so then when his grandson came and i kept i kept you know when we would see you in a game or, or Aaron in a game, and we'd talk about, you know, your dad, Bob Boone, because we'd seen him play. We'd broadcast games that he played. I kept wanting to call Carl Yastrzemski his dad, you know. It, it was hard. I was having a hard time getting my head around, no, that was his grandfather, for God's sakes. And yeah. uh, it's still kind of hard to imagine that that could be, could be so. But, but Mike Yastrzemski, and uh, forgive me if I'm going on, you can probably edit this all out for time, but the thing is oh, great when I first thought Yastrzemski had something special, Mike Yastrzemski, because I'm rooting for him big time. As soon as he arrives, his first hit was a bloop to left field. And he was so excited. He took a big turn around first base and the left fielder fired it in and, and picked him off trying to get back to first. <laughs> so he gets his first major league hit. And before he can even enjoy the moment, he's scrambling back to first and making a dive and getting tagged out. So now his next at bat, he gets another base hit and he goes tearing down to first because he's a fast runner. He runs well, takes a big turn at first and stops and goes back. And they had the camera on his wife, Paige, his wife and his mom and family people were all there. Uh, and they show her as he gets this next big hit and he goes around first and she's, she starts going like this, you know, <laughs> get back and uh and he goes you know he stops and goes back so she's coaching him don't do that again for god's sakes so uh anyway so he had been years in the baltimore farm system and only ever got invited to spring training one time and that was in 2019 his last year there and they cut him loose at the end of spring training that's how the giants got him uh, he was available and they said well let's let's get him well, there are a lot of things we like about him so he gets to the big leagues and he's only been there for several days. And the first road trip is Miami and then 
to Baltimore. So we go to Camden Yards. He never got to play at Camden Yards. He's in the Oriole farm system for years, never even a, a day in the big leagues. So you, you can only imagine the, th the stuff that's going through his head. And he comes up uh, in the first inning against a guy with a lot of big league experience. And, you know, sometimes you wonder, how's the guy going to handle all this? Because sometimes guys get a little over-anxious, right? Their, their, their adrenaline is, is pumping, and, and uh, they, they, you have to kind of contain that. Well, he hits a triple into the gap in right center field at Camden Yards, his first at bat. And I thought, well, that's impressive. Now his, he comes up an inning later against the same pitcher. And now he hits a home run, his first big league home run. And I thought, now that says something to me uh, about his ability. And maybe it's a family thing. Maybe it's growing up as a Yastrzemski uh, that he's able to compartmentalize that stuff and stay focused and not get overexcited. Some guys just get too, they get overexcited. They can't handle all the adrenaline. And he did. And then later that same year, uh, we went to Fenway Park. And it, it's the last road trip of the season. Before the game, he gets word in the clubhouse. You know, this is hours before the game that his grandfather is on the field and wants to see him. So he puts some, some clothes on goes out on the field and then all the photographers, they want photos of Mike Yastrzemski and his grandfather, the Hall of Famer, Carl Yastrzemski. They're talking and surrounded by people. And, and then they go walking out to left field. They said, we, we get a few moments to ourselves. They walk out to left field and Bruce Bochy was the manager and he knows baseball history. In Boston, Mike Yastrzemski, who generally played right field for the Giants, sometimes center, but generally right. He played left field at Fenway Park, of course. And Bochy knew that because he knows the game. So they go out to the left field scoreboard and, and they're talking about the wall and he's, Carl is pointing at different things on the wall. They open the door, they go inside the scoreboard, that hand-operated scoreboard out there and, uh, and so on and so forth. I remember asking Mike, I said, uh, so was, was your grandfather, was he giving you some, some pointers about playing the wall here? And he says, well, I grew up here. I've been going here since I was three years old. Uh, there's really nothing for him to point out to me about that wall that I didn't already know. So, uh, uh, but, and I, I was thinking this would be a little anecdote, but, uh, uh, but truly he had been there and, and envisioned to be in there his whole life. So now they, you know, the Red Sox are not in the pennant race, but you know how partisan that crowd is at Fenway. And, they introduced the lineups and, and Mike is leading off. And this is 15 minutes for game time, leading off for, for the Giants. Number five, Mike Yastrzemski. <sighs> Big ovation, as if Carl himself is back in the lineup at Fenway Park. He leads off the game against Nate Evaldi. And big ovation. Uh, and, and Mike has to back out of the box because it, there's it's a standing ovation. And he kind of doffs his cap, you know, to everybody. Evaldi ends up striking him out with a high fastball, like 99 miles an hour, because Evaldi's got, he's got the electricity. His second at bat, and I'm out in the stand. My daughter, uh, who lived in New York, has gone to the game, and I'm trying to show her a good place to go get a bite to eat on the, the rooftop at Fenway. But now Mike is coming up, and Dave Fleming is on the air. It's his inning. So I say, well, I'm going to take you over there, but I just we need to see Mike's at bat here. So we're out in the crowd with, with the fans. 
And he hits a home run into the center field bleachers at Fenway Park. What a moment. And the place just went nuts. You know, it was as if Carl himself was back in uniform and it just hit one. And all of a sudden, Mike Yastrzemski is everybody in Boston's son and grandson, next door neighbor. And they went nuts and the people standing right in front of us, they're hugging each other and throwing their arms up and screaming and giving each other high fives. It was just so cool to be out there with those fans and to see them celebrate that moment for a guy in a Giants uniform, not even a, uh, an American League guy, because they all had such a feeling for Carl Yastrzemski. And it was, uh, by extension, uh, it was a family thing, a family moment. So, um, And then for the rest of the time we were there, uh, the fans were all calling the talk shows just, why do we still have Benintendi? We should have picked up Yastrzemski when we had the chance. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> John, you've been you've been part of so much history. And I mean, I just go through your career. Uh 83 to 96, you're in Baltimore. Obviously, Ripken's streak. Uh, I think you I think you got are on the call the night he he I know by that time you were in San Francisco, but I think maybe nationally you called his last game. Uh well, I called got, his game the, the night that he broke Gary's record. Right, right. I think you did the national, yeah. right? Well, uh, no, I did the the local. They asked me. If oh, I you did the. To oh, do. you can't. Oh, because you were, weren't you with the Giants by then? No, no, I was still in uh, in Baltimore, and uh, I went to the Giants in '97. But uh, in oh, that's 90- right. He broke the record in '96. He finished the streak in '98. That's where I got. That's where oh, I that got could confused. Be, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that's where I got confused. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that that's all right. The uh, uh, but it is a cool story because. Uh, ESPN was going to do the telecast, and it was it was it was ninety five actually the uh, the first year back after the strike, right? You know, and, and people were outraged by that. Uh, a lot of people were saying, "I washed my hands of this game." I uh, a pox on both their houses. They didn't like the players. They didn't like the owners. Either one, and uh, so that game was going to be televised nationally. The game where he was going to break the record on ESPN. And Chris Berman, it was going to be his game. But Chris Berman asked me, he says, now, you've been here all that time through that whole streak. And if you want to do it, I want you to do it. I'll, I'll step aside. And, uh, and I didn't want to do it. I wanted to do it on our local broadcast because, uh, you know, that's, I wanted to talk to Orioles fans and experience it that way. And it was really a, 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 a great, magnanimous, unselfish gesture by Chris Berman uh, because he ended up winning an Emmy Award for that telecast. And, you know, he aced it, but uh, it was so gracious for him to offer it to me instead. And uh, But I wanted to do, and I went on the telecast for a, a half inning or whatever. Uh, one of the, the moments that I remember was the president was uh, uh, Bill Clinton. And President Clinton was going to come on the air with us in the fourth inning in our booth. And so he's on, and then count comes up while he's on. And the count goes to three balls and no strikes. So I make this kind of lame joke to the president. Says, well, Mr. President, they can't, you know, because the fans are booing. When the time gets to ball three, they're booing the pitcher. I said, Mr. President, uh, they can't walk count tonight of all nights. Uh, the fans just uh, won't stand for it. Maybe you could send a presidential order down to the field, ordering him to throw Cal a strike. So the president says, well, 
I know uh, Cal wants to hit one here, but if it's a ball, he'll take his walk for the good of the team because that's the kind of guy he is. And I said, well, I, I agree. That, that is the kind of guy he is. On the other hand, even though it's 3-0, and if he grooves him down the middle, and before I could even say, then he'll crush it, the president says, oh, then he'll hit it a long way. So as soon as he says that, the pitch comes in, he grooves it, boom, he hit it a long way. So I get excited. I know that ball is gone, and I get real excited. And after the game, when we play the some of the highlights of the game, we get to that moment, and the president has his own microphone, and he starts going, "Go, go, yes!" <laughs> Clapping his hands and just going nuts. And meanwhile, I'm just some disembodied voice in the background just shouting like some a maniac some unintelligible stuff and uh, so i kid and say so the next day i called the white house and said that was the most unprofessional thing i've ever seen in a big league broadcast booth and mark my words uh, president clinton will never broadcast another game with me again and, and uh, but i realized in you know truth be told that that made the call the president of the united states was leading the cheering for this great home run that Cal hit the night that he's breaking this all-time record. I mean, what are the odds that he'd hit a home run in that game uh, and and doing it because it was just a half inning away from that game becoming an official game? And uh, so it, it kind of made the call. And uh, so I was grateful for that. The other part of it was what to do with that record, how to recognize it. You know, and Pete Rose got the base hit and became the all-time hit king. We knew when that was going to happen that that would be the record. There he got the hit. That's the moment. Um, Henry Aaron broke the Babe's record. He hit number 715. There it is. He's the new home run king. Um, Barry Bond later on broke, broke uh, Aaron's record. This record was a little different than that. In, in effect, if he showed up and he was healthy... <laughs> He showed up at the ballpark and was in the lineup. That's the record. I went on the David Letterman show. He was in the Ed Sullivan Theater during batting practice that night. And the idea was that he'd say, we're taping the show before the game, but it's going to be on after the game. He's broken the record when people see this show. So maybe you could tell us what you'll say just to give our viewers a little flavor about what it was like uh, when he broke the record. I said, sure, Dave, uh, happy to. And now the Orioles take the field for tonight's game. There goes Cal. He's out to shortstop. He's there now. And that's the record. <laughs> that's and the big That's the in, big call. In my earphone, I hear from the Ed Sullivan Theater, big laugh. So, and, and, you know, the producer and whatnot gave me this whole thing, uh, how to do it and whatnot. It, it was something that their writers had dreamed up. And it worked. And, and that was the problem, though, right? If he showed up and he was healthy, that's the another record. record. Yeah, another but Charles record. Steinberg with the Orioles, he was kind of a promotional genius. He came up. He says nothing is a record until it's an official game. Look at the rule book. So you that you finish the top of the fifth inning if the home fifth. team's ahead, or you finish the fifth inning entirely if the visiting team's ahead. Then. It's the record. That becomes the record. So 
starting on the previous homestand, like a week and a half maybe before uh, he was going to break the record, they, you know, when the when the game was official, the first time they did it, Cal ran out to shortstop because the Orioles were behind. So it was at the end of the fifth inning, and they started playing this this great music, and they put the rule from the rule book up on the scoreboard, you know, rule thirty one C, and uh, uh, the game becomes an official game, you know, and so you gave you time to read that, and then they unfurled the number they had the banners up on the, the warehouse in right field for the new number. And, and then everybody cheered. And we all thought, this is so hokey. And look at Cal. He hates it. Cal is not happy about this. But then we saw the genius of it when we got home. And now he's just like a couple days away. That that is the moment. He created the moment of the record. And that's when the fans would would start to cheer and salute Cal for the, getting the record. The night before, the number unfurled, and Cal has tied Garrick's record. And uh, uh, so, and then the night that he broke the record, and that that was it. So, a um, stroke of genius by, by Charles Steinberg. Uh, what people forget is that Cal was trying to accommodate everybody. It was an extraordinary time because we were on these road trips and everybody wants autographs from Cal. You know, he's getting closer to the record all the time. And we're in Minnesota one night at the Metrodome. And 15 minutes after the game, Cal comes out of the dugout, back onto the field, and starts signing autographs for the people who were still there. Now, the next night, he did it again. And by the third night, a lot of people had heard he was doing this. And now there was a whole line of people. And he stood out there until he signed for every single one of those people. And he did that in every road ballpark up until he got the record. And he said that, uh, after the fact he said that, his wife had told him, says, I hope, sweetheart, I know you're so focused on the game that you always just focus on the game and nothing more. But I hope, my hope for you is that you'll allow yourself to enjoy this, all the hard work and now being saluted for being so reliable and all the hard work you've put in. So that was Cal's way of trying to soak it all in, to share those moments with all those fans that were coming out who wanted to see him play. Because teams were getting bigger crowds in their ballparks because they wanted to see Cal so close to getting that record. So by the time that we got to the, the night where he broke the record, Cal had hardly had any sleep for, for days. He was still getting up. The team was home. He was getting up at the crack of dawn, having breakfast with his kids, driving the kids to school, <laughs> and you know, then getting to the ballpark early and uh, doing all the interviews and, and doing all of his pregame work. And what nobody knew was that by the time that that record-setting game came around, he woke up with a fever. Cal, he, I don't know if he had a, you know, a cold or a little bit of the flu or what, what it was, but he was sick. And uh, he, he should have been in bed probably. And, and yet he's getting there and doing all the stuff that was being asked of him. Uh, so now the fans held their own. He had told the, the Orioles, no celebration during the game. That's not who I am. It's, it shows no respect for the game. After the game's over, you want to have some ceremony? Great. I'm all in. Not during the game. And that's what was so cool about the whole night. The, the banner unfurls, the crowd goes nuts, 
and they never stopped going nuts. And the cheering was unending. And Cal kept coming up out of the dugout. It's very poignant now when you see it afterward on, on tape, knowing that he was sick, that he had a fever. And he'd come out, he'd tap his heart and, you know, thank you so much. And I, I appreciate it. And uh, Bobby Bonilla and Rafael Palmero, his teammates, came and said, Cal, you need to, he'd come out of the dugout three different times now to acknowledge the fans. And the, the cheering never stopped. Uh, you need to go do a lap around the, the warning track to acknowledge it over this. With. <laughs> yeah, or we'll never get the game started again. And Cal said, I couldn't, I won't make it. I can't do it. I'm I'm too sick. I, so so finally, they pushed him out of the dugout. And you'll see that you know, when you look at the tapes, that's what they did. There they were. They pushed him out of the dugout and sent him on his way. And the fans, 50,000 fans, held their own impromptu celebration during the game with Cal. It was not planned. Uh, there were no flyers that were handed out before the game. Here's what we're going to do when it becomes official. They just did that. And that ovation went on for, what, 15, 20 minutes? Uh, it may be the longest sustained standing ovation in the history of sports, or maybe just the history of the world. I don't know. And, uh, and it was the fans and Cal celebrating together. And, uh, and, and probably the most pointed that brought a tear to my eye Cal got, as he's running around the field, he goes past the Oriole bullpen, and Elrod Hendricks is the bullpen coach. Cal had known Elrod since he was a little kid, you know, because Cal grew up. His dad was a minor league manager and a coach and whatnot, and Cal in the summertime, he'd go be with his dad around all these minor Cal saw all these big leaguers before they got to the big leagues, and he'd shag and, and uh, he'd run errands in the clubhouse and whatnot. He knew them all including Elrod. He'd known Elrod since he was 10 years old uh, or, or younger. So Elrod kind of reaches over the wall and they exchange uh, uh, not just a high five, but a, uh, a, a moment. And, uh, and, and that was so cool because uh, Elrod looked at Cal almost uh, like he was his own son by extension, you know? And uh, so it was, a, it was a Baltimore thing because Cal was a Baltimorean. And uh, so those were all things that made that whole thing special. And then we go on the road to Cleveland. Cleveland needs a win to clinch a division title for the first time since 1954, the next game. And, uh, and so the, and Cleveland had a guy named Eddie Murray who was on that team. And they, they had a ceremony before the game where Cal and Eddie got together because Eddie Murray is the guy Cal always talked about when Cal got to the big leagues and it was clear he was going to be a star. He won the uh, rookie of the year award as a, uh, in 82 as a rookie. And uh, Eddie said to him, listen, you're hitting third. I'm hitting fourth. There's a responsibility that goes with that. That means you're one of the key guys to this club and this lineup. You've got to get your rest. You've got to eat well. You've got to take care of yourself and be ready to play every single day. Because any day that you don't play is a letdown to everybody in this room, to all of your teammates. Well, uh, Cal took those words to heart more than anybody's ever taken any kind of words to heart. And he played every day for, what, 
16 years after uh, that. it's 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 unbelievable i i'm telling you when i was a kid i was i was that way i was hey i play every day i never take a day off i went round and round early in my career with davy johnson and then he said all right booney what do you want i said i play every day davy and he let me go about 150 games and he came to me in my locker one day he goes how you feeling and i was fried i was struggling i i needed a day off so bad and he said uh wouldn't need a day off would you and i looked at him thank you yes yes <laughs> and i said i'm no i'm no cal ripkin i'm no cal ripkin well you but know John, uh, you've, there was a, there was a moment in minnesota where and kirby puckett and cal and eddie murray they were all good buddies and they'd go to each other's um, charity events in the off season uh, it was, Kirby would have some kind of a pool tournament to raise money for a cause in Minnesota. And Cal and Eddie would both go to that. And uh, Cal would have some event and uh, Eddie would have an event. Kirby would come from out of town to go to those events. So they all knew each other well, and they were all good friends. And uh, Kirby hits a double at the Metrodome. So he's in second. He's talking with Cal. And he says, Rip, how you doing, man? He says, oh. He says, you look, you look, uh, you look a little tired. Are you tired? Are you worn out? He says, I have to tell you, I, I admit to you, I, I'm really dragging, man. I'm, I, we, we got here at 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we've been on the road for 10 days or whatever, and I'm, I am dragging. He says, well, look at the bright side. Just five more years, and you can take a day off. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> literally. It's, he it's had it added up. Yeah. You, you only have 800 more games, and then you just start taking days off. So, uh, And they laughed about it, but, uh, but Cal did. There were many times – where he played through injury and he was a fast healer. Uh, and the, the, the streak could have ended before it ever started. The day after opening day in 83 at uh, Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, the day after opening day, they'd always go down to Annapolis and play the Naval Academy baseball team. And the whole team would always go down because it was the Naval Academy. Well, Cal got roughed up trying to complete a double play at second base. And when the game was over, his his right ankle blew up. It was like twice normal size. And he was on crutches. He left the ballpark on crutches. And the next day he was still on crutches. And they said, well, don't even go to Annapolis. You're not, it's an exhibition game. <laughs> you stay off your feet and, uh, you know, ice it and do, do all that kind of stuff. And then the next day, the swelling had disappeared and Cal played. But if, the day after opening day had been a game day. No way he would have played. He was on crutches. So, yeah. and at that point, the, the streak was only about what a hundred, hundred something games. But uh, so who, he may have still had the long streak after that, but it would have been another year later before he would have broken the record. But uh, anyway, so that was kind of cool. And uh, I learned a lot about the game from Cal because he studied so much. He's the only guy I ever saw where the catcher, was having an argument with the pitcher about the pitch to throw. And Cal, of course, always knew what the signs were because the other infielders looked to Cal to, to find out what, what they should do. So he'd, he'd have a little sign that he'd clue them into what was going on. So now uh, the pitcher wanted to throw this, Hoyles, the catcher, wanted to throw that. And then they look at Cal and says, Hoyles says, what do you think, Cal? He says, what do you mean, what do I think? He says, well, what should we throw him here? And Cal said, uh, well, I think because of this and because of that, you should throw him this. 
He says, all right, so can you just keep doing that? And uh, Cal says, doing what? He says, calling the pitches? He says, you mean from shortstop? He says, yeah. He says, you mean for the rest of the inning? He says, no, just from now on. <laughs> so, so that is what they did. And it went on for a couple of weeks where he's calling the pitchers from shortstop. And finally, Johnny Oates, the manager, he, 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 he sees this, he sees that, he sees this. And he puts it together, what's going on? And Cal comes in, he says, listen, I see what you're doing. And, and I don't mind that you're doing that, but I'm the manager. If that's going to happen, you have to tell me and let me sign off on it. And, and, and it's fine with me. But if I saw it, those guys over there, they're going to see it at some point. Right, right. And when I see that that's that they're that they're seeing it, that'll be the end of it. And so they, they had that agreement. But uh, so there, Cal was a guy who commanded a lot of respect in that clubhouse, as you might imagine. You had, I mean, you've been a part of so many historic things, starting with, like you said, '74 was your first year. A's win the World Series, the Cal streak. The years of Dusty Baker, the Barry Bonds years, which I played through too and watched in my eyes, the, the greatest ever. And no one I've seen is even close. You were up close and personal for all that. Uh, you called the single season record, the all-time record. Uh, Bochy years in the World Series, 10, 12, and 14. Three rings and three parades. Uh, going into the Hall of Fame in 2010. You've had all these unbelievable things happen to you unbelievable calls is there anything if i said john miller can you just give me a couple of the biggest moments of of your broadcasting career can you even narrow it down to a couple or you just there's too many to count well uh, i mean you know and i don't look at it that way i look at it as to uh, uh on a nightly basis was i any good tonight or where was i not good uh, the great thing about baseball is the next night you can do better. You know, if you're doing football and you didn't like your broadcast, you have to wait a whole week before you get a chance to do better baseball. Uh, and, and, you know, and you say, well, you say to yourself, well, uh, and it may be similar to being a player where you, th you think I wasn't good on this and I got to be more focused when that happens. And, and then you make that a point the next night to, to, to make sure you're on top of it. But uh, uh, for me, one of the most extraordinary things I saw and all those moments and I savored them. Although I will, I, I make a joke out of it, but like if a guy's got a no hitter, let's say, and I've done it, I've done a few no hitters. Uh, I, it's too stressful. You know, all of a sudden you're not just broadcasting the game anymore. Uh, this is history in the making. Uh, you've got to have some things at your fingertips to, uh, to you know, get the context, right. And when's the last one? Uh, when's the last time the Giants had one? You know, so on and so forth. It, all of a sudden, it's it's pressure. I don't want that. I just want a good game uh, with some great moments. And uh, uh, so I joke about it, but at the same time, uh, that's that's actually true. Uh, and and I loved all of those no hitters. Uh, Matt Cain's perfect game. Uh, what a night that was. And I'll never forget the last hitter of the game was. Uh, was Castro, Jason Castro, who is from the East Bay. He grew up a Giants fan from Castro Valley. And his mom and dad came up into the booth with me and Dwayne Kuyper. Mike Kruko had the, the night off, so I'm on TV with Kuyper for that game. 
now he's not in the lineup. Well, we remember in his major league debut, he hit his first home run against Matt Cain in Houston. And we were asking his parents, is, is something wrong with, with him? How come he's not in the lineup? He got his first home run against Kane. Why is he not in there? He says, well, that's the question we asked him. And he's is just as clueless as, as you are. He doesn't know. And he's not that happy about it. And the Astros, you know, they were a young team at that time and not a good team. They were in that rebuilding where they were losing 100 games a year still. Uh, but now what happens, Kane has re retired the first 26 guys. It's the ninth inning. He needs one out more. And who comes up out of the dugout? Jason Castro. And we're like, Kipe and I look at each other. We're like, uh-oh. <laughs> now? Now he's going to come up? And uh, so he ends up hitting a ground ball down the third base side. And uh, Joaquin Arias plays the ball. And and he almost he, he stumbled a little bit. The ball took a little funny hop on him. But he got the throw off and, and got the out. Kane later said, when that ball got hit, you know, because Castro was a left-handed hitter, it was one of those swings where he thought from the pitcher's mound, oh, hell, it's going to be one of those little ground balls right along the third baseline that goes down the left field line for an extra base hit. And he thought the perfect game was over. And But from his angle, he, he didn't see that it was actually gettable for Arias, and he did get it. And I think he was shaded a little bit toward the line, even with the left-handed hitter up there. Uh, maybe he saw what was happening and, and anticipated it, whatever it was. So Kane got the uh, the perfect game. But uh, so sometimes there are little stories behind the stories that, that you think about. And uh, uh, but the Giants had a no hitter every year there. That was the fourth year in a row that a Giant pitcher had pitched a no hitter. Uh, uh, Jonathan Sanchez in '09 uh, pitched one. And for me, it was not a perfect game. He allowed one base runner, and that was an error, a ground ball to third uh, to Juan Uribe that Uribe had played a thousand times in his career. No problem. And he booted it. And that it was the only base runner. Now, for me, he didn't pitch a perfect game. He pitched better than a perfect game. He got 28 guys out. Isn't that better than a perfect game that you got 27 guys out? Uh, so I think that's, there's a little unfairness there to, uh, categorizing what's perfect and what isn't. Uh, he was even a little better than perfect in that one. Uh, Linskin pitched a no hitter just before the all-star break, uh, in, uh, 2010. And then he pitched another one the next year. And then Kane had the perfect game in, in 2012. So the Giants had some pretty good pitching in that era when they were winning those world series and Tim Linskin, just watching him emerge as a guy that everybody thought was too small. You know, the, the Giants had the 10th pick in the draft and nine teams passed on him. And most of those nine teams got a lot of flack from their fans for picking the guy that they picked and not Tim Linsicum because Linsicum was the real deal. Uh, and he, he was kind of a shooting star. He flamed out early, which maybe that was inevitable with his size, but, uh, Man, he was so fun to watch, and Giants fans adore him to this day. And they they, they don't call him Linskim; they call him Timmy, and uh, like he was, uh, like they watch him grow up into an adult. And uh, so, uh, so all of those things have, have been so much fun, and uh, to watch the Giants have that parade in 2010, winning their first World Series in San Francisco, 
there was one guy in that parade who was wearing a Giants World Series ring. And that was Willie Mays, who had been a star player the last time the Giants had won a World Series as the New York Giants in 1954. And Willie wore that World Series ring in that parade that day. Uh, the estimates were that there were a million people lining the streets of San Francisco. And, and they cheered. It was like the, the ovation given to Cal the night he broke Gehrig's record, except it was all through the streets of San Francisco. When we finally got to City Hall, uh, we got out of the, 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 the cars that we were in, the vintage cars, the convertibles, and went into the City Hall where it was quiet. And my ears were ringing because it was this constant ovation. And I, I don't know if my hearing has ever come back from that, uh, much less than they had two more of those kind of parades. Uh, it, it was just so much fun and so cool. And they had those guys, they had four relief pitchers. Yeah, Felt, Javier Lopez, the left-handers, Sergio Romo and Santiago Casilla, four key high leverage late inning relievers that were there for all three of those. And those guys were all good and they had long careers and they were good in the regular season to help them get to the postseason. But they were all four better in the postseason. Affelt, even more than the rest, uh, he gave up a run, maybe his first postseason appearance as a giant never allowed another run in all those postseasons after that. So, uh, you know, Romo ended up getting the final out in 2012. He, he shocked Miguel Cabrera, maybe the best hitter on the planet with a fastball, <laughs> an 87 mile an hour fastball down the middle. Last thing in the world he was looking for, and he never even got off a swing. Series over. Uh, the, uh, in 2010, uh, Brian Wilson was the closer, and he may have sacrificed his arm to help the Giants win in that postseason. Uh, you know, he was never really quite the same again. And in 2014, uh, Santiago Casilla ended up being the closer. There was always in a state of flux. Bruce Bochy, if whoever the closer was, was not getting it done, he might change in midseason. And uh, he was a, a master of manipulating the bullpen. But the way he would work that bullpen in the regular season had nothing to do with the way he worked it in the postseason. And that reminded me of Joe Torrey. The, remember when the, the Yankees, and I remember, I think you you were at some of those. You worked some of those games on on, on television. Oh, um, 03. Yeah, 03. Yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> Fish uh, out of water. Didn't want to be there. I'll do there. You pay me <laughs> enough. <laughs> but we uh, – Torrey had those guys. He had the great Mariano Rivera, yeah. the best ever. Uh, and he, but he always had several other guys. Jeff Nelson was one of those guys. Uh, Mike Stanton, a left-hander, he was one of those guys. Ramiro Mendoza. And those guys, it was the same thing. They were always all better in the postseason than they'd been in the regular season. Kind of like Derek Jeter in that way. But he used the bullpen differently in the postseason. The Yankees would come from behind in some of those games because I worked all those games with Joe. Uh, we did the World Series every year, uh, the two of us, maybe for 13 years on ESPN radio. And and then Bochy had his big time to shine under those bright lights. And he manipulated the bullpen brilliantly and in an entirely different way. 
he brought Affeld into a, a game in Philadelphia in 2010, the clinching game, game six. He brought him in in the third inning. Affeld was a seventh, eighth, ninth inning guy. He brought him in in the third. And, uh, and he did that regularly. In the, the final clinching game seven in 2014, Tim Hudson made the start. And he brought Affeld into that game in the third inning. Uh, same thing. So it was all about having the lead and then figuring out a way to manipulate the bullpen to hold that lead, not take it for granted that you were going to score again. And in that 2014 game seven, they did not score again. Uh, in 2010 in Philadelphia, in that clinching game, which everybody, the whole country thought the Phillies were going to win. They had just been to the World Series two years in a row. And now they, they needed two wins and they were home for both games. But he went to his bullpen in the third. The Phillies never scored again in a tie game. And then Juan Uribe hit an opposite field home run, maybe the seventh or eighth inning, to break the tie. And that was it. And Brian Wilson came in and got the, the final uh, five outs or whatever. Ended up getting through a bases loaded jam in the ninth inning, striking out uh, Ryan Howard. And that was it. So uh, manipulating those bullpens, and I put Tory and Bochy in what I've seen into a separate category and famous last words of managers in those postseason series. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And they said, well, I don't think it's complicated. It's because we did it that way all year long. That's what got us here. Why would I change that now? Well, that's not what Joe Torrey's saying. That's not what Bruce Bochy's saying. They're doing something entirely different. And uh, and I saw so many managers that, and it's hard to argue with that, right? It got them there. That's how you. That's how we did it. That's how we made it here. Why would I change down? Well, it's it's a different animal. These postseason games, and there's a sense of urgency that doesn't exist in the regular season, where there's always another game, there's always another week. But these postseason series, they can turn on just this game, and uh, so anyway, so uh, I. I remember in 2015, uh, you know, there's a tradition in baseball, the broadcasters, they get a World Series ring, which I don't know why that is or how it started, but I'm glad they did. It's exciting to get a World Series ring. And so I would always wear that World Series ring, they, you know, opening day or whatever, they have the ring ceremony before the game. And, and I would wear it for two, three weeks or whatever, because People in the neighborhood, people at the ballpark, everybody wants to see it. So I thought, well, I'll wear it, and then people can see it. I can show it to everybody. But I always felt embarrassed wearing it because I had nothing to do with it. It was my good fortune as a broadcaster that I happened to be there with all these great players who won the whole thing. It's just a lucky break for me. Um, so when I put the ring away, I put it in the safe or whatever, I'm not wearing it. And the first night I don't wear it at the ballpark, I see Bochi and he says, where's your ring? How come you're not wearing it? And I told him, I said, well, I, like I just said, I, I feel embarrassed wearing it because I didn't do anything to win any game. He says, well, I didn't do anything to win a game. I said, what, what are you talking about? You're the manager. You, you made the pinch hitting uh, assignments. You put the bun on. You brought in the relievers at the right time and, and whatnot. You had everything to do with it. He says, no, no. I brought in guys 
in a good spot for them, maybe. But we won because they executed. They succeeded. It's not given you bring a guy in that he's going to get that guy out. He might give up a hit. It might not even be his fault. He might break the guy's bat and a little flare falls in. The whole thing gets turned around. Uh, and I remember thinking, wow, that is who Bochi is. Because he meant what he said. And I think the players respond to that with Bochi. He gives the players credit for the whole thing. And he demands a, a level of professionalism. And he demands that you play hard. And he does try to put you in a, the best spot for you to succeed. But if you succeed, it was all on you because you succeeded and you get the credit. And I think guys responded to that and they played extra hard for him because of that. John Miller, this is, this has been a lot of fun, a lot of great story. It's remarkable because as hitters, we remember certain, certain games, certain counts. Yeah. I hit a home run and it was a three, two count. It was off this pitcher. We can remember stuff like that, but the way you wreck you, you can replay these games. It's really cool to hear, uh, man, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on the Boone podcast. Hall of Famer John Miller. Uh, we did it for a couple hours. For those out there listening to the Boone podcast, I hope you had a good time listening. We'll see you next time.